0: Ukraine. And I was trying to get away with not talking about Ukraine for a while, because as I've mentioned in, I think, last week's episode and the first uh, first week of the semester, I really just have no interest in talking about Ukraine. Not that it's not important, and not that I, you know, geopolitics is boring or anything, even though... Uh, I just don't think that, you know, I, I just, I feel like everybody in the world is talking about it, and I feel like you know, whatever. Mm, that That's that's extremely inarticulate, but I just don't want to talk about it. However, it is it is kind of the only thing uh, the news is talking about this week, probably for good reason. Um, but for that reason, we're going to start off talking about Ukraine. We're then going to talk about, guys, I'm talking about a sports story. Uh, we're talking about the Major League Baseball lockout and kind of some updates around that. I'm, I mentioned it briefly last semester, but we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit more. Uh, we're going to talk about... Um, an update with the Sandy Hook um, victims' families lawsuit uh, against the gun manufacturer. And then we are going to do a couple Senate updates um, because there are some movements happening over there that I think it's important that we all keep abreast of considering how important the Senate is going to be in the ability for Biden to accomplish any of his legislative priorities um, over the next year, if he will be able to accomplish anything he wants to do Over the next um, year or the next nine or so months before midterms, um, he's gonna have to kind of work with the Senate and get the Senate to work with him. So it's important that we kind of keep abreast of everything that's going on there. So without further ado, just gonna jump into it. Um, Oh, and also at the end, we have more boat news. If you listened along the last couple semesters, you'll know that I love boats. And so I have got a new boat story for y'all. Anyway. So first things first, Ukraine. Again, I tried to avoid it for as long as I could. This is the only thing that the news is concerned about right now, which I understand, but I'm still going to be petulant about because I don't want to talk about it. And that's, you know, that's my prerogative. This is my radio show, you know. Um, I have so much power back here behind my little, behind my little control booth. Anyway. So, like I said last week, U.S. intelligence claimed that Russia was actively preparing to invade, um, and they kind of thought that it was going to happen this week. Of course, it didn't, um, as far as we know, um, unless they did it in secret, and just literally nobody knows. But, um, so, they still haven't invaded, but it, like, wildly raised tensions, um, and just continuing the kind of trend of everyone, you know, a lot of brinksmanship, just kind of everyone pointing guns at each other and kind of... Oh, who's going to be the first one to move, you know? Um, But war, I think at least, based on American media, war is definitely seen to be imminent. Like, it's not a, oh, maybe this is going to happen. It's like, this is coming down the line. This is going to happen very quickly. Like, there's no kind of stopping it at this point. Um, So, but I I think the, the interesting dichotomy is, based off of, like, some of the research that I've been doing, it seems like people in the U.S. are a lot more concerned than people in Ukraine. Um, and I obviously, I don't know this for sure because I haven't spoken to anyone in Ukraine. Uh, but it kind of seems like, like people aren't leaving. Like they're, they're, they, they know that, you know, the Russian troops are about to march over the border, but they're not leaving their homes and they're just kind of hanging out. I, whether that means that they're just like sick of running from Russia and they just want to kind of stay put and let the cards fall where they may, maybe that's it. Um, or it's also possible that they just kind of do think that the, the conflict is a little bit overblown, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, rather than talk about all the moves and counter moves, because, you know, we can sit here and we can talk about the, the Security Council meetings, um, we can sit here and, and talk about all the different meetings that NATO has had in Germany and the UK and everything else. That's boring. You don't need me to, to talk to you about that. Um, but the main question that I'm concerned about um, just kind of on a general level, is, is does Putin know what he's doing, right? Like, what is his end goal? Is he some kind of mastermind, or is he just kind of an idiot? Like, it's it's unclear to me, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people can can tell me better. I'm sure any of the Elliot students out there uh, can can explain this better than me. But it's just a question of, you know, what is, what are his intentions? What is his strategy? Does he have Does he have an end game that he is actively working towards? Um, You know, some of the research I've been doing has been saying like Putin has always been a very detached international leader. He's been detached from um, the international community a lot. Specifically, um, you know, as as the pandemic has started, he's definitely like pulled back uh, even more. He like a lot of conference, like international conferences and stuff. He's attended over, um, you know, Zoom, you know, whatever, um, as, as we all know. But, you know, even in-person conferences, he's attended over Zoom and uh, um, just generally kind of, you know, the quite, quite literally, um, they there's, there's pictures of all the meetings that Putin has had with international leaders where they're they're sitting at two ends of a 20 foot long table. Like a really, really, really long conference table and they're sitting on opposite sides, which is like, you know, the proverbial distance between Russia and the rest of the world and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, look at that. It's like a metaphor in real life, um, which we, of course, love to see. But anyway, so he's been he's always been withdrawn from the international community uh, and he has now kind of been seen to be drawing back internally as well. And he's been kind of isolating himself from his ministers and from the rest of his government which is a little bit interesting um as well so it's also like pretty well known that starting a full-scale war is not in putin's best interest considering the fact that like according to most things that i've read his main goal here is to scare nato out of eastern europe right like he wants nato to to, to back the heck up to take three big steps back Um, and of course fully invading Ukraine and starting a hot war there especially if you know if they go so close to Poland um, that's not that's not in Putin's best interest because it's only going to ramp up um, you know ramp up tensions in the region and it's going to cause NATO to kind of have a stronger um, force in that region. Um, it's also interesting you know, we were talking about this in one of my classes, but NATO has been like pretty consistent and pretty unified on this. Um, so of course NATO is not like a hugely unified body usually. They're not the best, most efficient organization, I suppose. Um, but this 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 issue, this conflict is really kind of binding them all together and kind of refocusing them on on the, that one specific enemy, which is, you know, why NATO was created in the first place. So I think that they feel some so maybe maybe they feel some like pumped up sense of superiority because now their their actual mission is reemerging as a threat. So anyway, um so my question is does he actually care about Ukraine now or is he just digging in his heels, right? Like um parliament has been urging him to annex more of Ukraine. There's, you know, nationalists in the Russian media who have been pushing and pushing and pushing him Does it mean now, like, he was just trying to scare NATO out, and now that NATO's not leaving, is he just kind of digging in his heels and saying, oh, yeah, we were totally going to invade Ukraine. We're totally going to invade Ukraine. Um, I tend to think that that might be accurate, honestly, because, um, again, full-scale war is not in his best interest. He has no actual, like, interest in Ukraine. It's not like Ukraine has any, like, natural resources that Russia desperately needs. Um, And so I think it's just more out of principle that he's staying in Sticking to what he's doing now, um, and so you know Putin is still arguing that the the West is the aggressor and that they're quote exerting pressure and escalating tensions, um, and so it's it kind it, again it kind of feels to me um, like Putin is trying to turn NATO and turn the West and kind of into kind of like the boogeyman um, of this whole situation as opposed to kind of owning the fact that he was the aggressor in the first place. Um, And of course, again, like the, as I've said a couple times, full scale war is not in Russia's best interest at all. Like a short scale conflict is definitely supported by the Russian people, but a full scale war that like goes on for more than a week um, is definitely not going to be of, you know, it's not, it's not going to assist with any kind of stability in Russia. um, And the Russian people, I don't think are going to necessarily be super into it. Um, And so as soon as, you know, the, the Russian people start turning against Putin and start saying, no, actually, like, this is not what we want, this is not what you should be doing, there's going to be that 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 issue of, okay, great, we started this war, we can't back out now because, you know, Russia can't be seen as weak on the international stage, but now the people don't support it, and now what do we do? Of course, not that Russia necessarily cares so much about the will of the people, I guess, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, but it's still significant. Um, considering that they do kind of need some kind of popular backing, because Putin can't can't just do everything independently. And of course, if his government turns against him, if there's any kind of like larger um, situation there, it's not going to be good. But and then the main question that I've been reading about the kind of like you know the large larger overarching argument is is he bluffing? Has he been bluffing this entire time? Um, a, a couple pundits that I've read, I think they're mainly like Russian. Um, scholars and stuff have been saying, yeah, the Putin has been putting on this this show of being this like ooh scary like monster under your bed, Vladimir Putin and his shirtless horse riding, um, and so he's been he's been creating he's been he's been fostering this image of like the evil genius, and Americans are falling for it, and they're allowing tensions to be escalated more and more and more um, which allows russia then to blame the west and to blame um nato for any kind of escalating tensions you know because they were bluffing and saying oh well we're going to invade the ukraine getting america and nato to get all you know angry and puffed up in the way that only america and the american military can do and then when a conflict starts russia can kind of blame that on the anger from the west which is very interesting and very strategic and a little bit horrifying um and it is interesting because i mean i definitely obviously maybe maybe that is just the russian narrative that i'm regurgitating right now um because we do know that there are russian troops massed on the border we know that the russians are adding more troops every day to that region um so we do know that there's a legitimate threat there um, but it is interesting. And also, if it's a bluff, it's a really, really expensive bluff. It costs a lot of money to have troops be stationed there for such a long time um, and to, like, continually be adding troops and tanks and stuff like that. For that reason, again, like, at this point, if Putin was bluffing, I think he would have stopped because it, it he would have said, all right, yeah, you're right. you, You got me. You got me. And he would have taken his troops and he would have gone home because now he's still spending so much money and nothing is happening for him. You know, his whole goal was to push NATO again out of Eastern Europe. He was not able to accomplish that task. And so now he's just hanging out, um, basically, I guess, quote unquote, wasting money, keeping troops at the border when he could be using that money for other things. So um, that's that that's the tension for me right now is you know what's a bluff and what's a strategy and is Putin this like amazing strategic mind you know like how again because I'm not I'm not hugely invested in geopolitics it's not my thing I am a domestic policy girl I've said it before I'll say it again Um, so I just truly don't know kind of what Putin has been like on the world stage since he took office but I tend to think that he must be a fairly good strategic mind. You know, he was able to get to this position. He was able to keep this power for such a long time. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm wondering whether this is again maybe this, if this is his strategy, if he has some kind of larger end goal, um, if he really is just a doing it to exacerbate tensions and then kind of blame the West if anything goes wrong, um, or just in general, like kind of what what his true end goal is going to be here. Um and whether he planned for it or whether he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Um, which if I were him, that's what I'd be doing. Um, but anyway, so we're we're definitely gonna see kind of where this all goes. Um it's not doesn't look like something that's gonna go away anytime soon. Um and, and so we'll can kind of continue to be tracking these tensions and see if there's any kind of movement on either side um from the Russians, whether they try to kind of invent some way um for Russia to invade Ukraine, quote-unquote, legitimately, um, or whether they just kind of full send it, um, or whether they just, they they pull back and they say, all right, it's all good. Um, So that's going to be, you know, very interesting to continue to watch, and of course, this is going to be a a very interesting case study down the line. Maybe we're still hurtling towards World War III. I don't know. Maybe we are. That'd be unfortunate. I wouldn't like that very much, but eh, who knows? Um, Also, You know, I should have prefaced this up at the top, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit again at the end, but two weeks from now-ish, Biden is giving his second State of the Union address, March 1st. It's Tuesday. Um, So everything that we're talking about right now, maybe mine or the Major League Baseball story that we're about to get into, is going to be very, very important for Biden's State of the Union address. He is about to get up in front of the whole country. His numbers are. In the toilet, and he needs to kind of show that he is knows what he's doing. There's a unified front, all these different things, um, and so of course, if there's if there's the start of a violent um, conflict in Ukraine in Russia um, before March first, it's going to be very interesting to see um, what. Biden is able to do with that. And of course, his poor speechwriters are going to have to rewrite the whole State of the Union in two weeks. And so I really hope that that doesn't happen for him. But anyway, just keeping all of these different stories in mind as we get up towards the State of the Union, um, because we are really going to have to think about, um, you know, how Biden is choosing to address all these different things, Um, you know, all of the all of these different situations that are just causing his numbers to be so bad is he going to be able to truly back up his um you know his claims his actions all those things anyway i just think that that's an important thing to point out because when the state of the union happens we're gonna have a lot to talk about in terms of kind of biden trying to take control of the narrative again uh, and i think that taking control of the narrative about ukraine is specifically interesting um you know another big component of this story. I talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago. Um, But a lot of people in the U.S. are really, really not in support of us getting involved in Ukraine at all. First of all, because people in America are increasingly isolationist. They don't want to get involved externally, which I I guess I understand. It makes sense. Um, They also, there's been a huge kind of group of people who really are saying, we just got out of Afghanistan. You screwed you mess that up royally. Um, and, you know, we just pulled out. There's still all these people that are, that are trying to get asylum and all these different things. How can you start another hot conflict um, in a foreign country when we just had this kind of disastrous situation in Afghanistan? And I do think that's kind of vaguely bipartisan. Um, I think that the isolation argument is a little bit more conservative I think to be honest I'm not I'm not 100% um convinced by that um but I do think the idea of the fact that we just pulled out of Afghanistan it went really badly maybe we need to reassess our kind of like international interference before we move forward it's also more conservative um than liberal but then again you know kind of any action that Biden takes is going to have more pushback from conservatives so that's just a blanket thing if you haven't got that over the past year that's the way that this works. Um, but anyway, th- those are those are kind of like those two main domestic arguments against involvement. Although again, the, the larger argument, I guess, is like, this country is about to get invaded. Their sovereignty is about to be entirely violated. Whatever, like we have to go in, we have to help them. I don't know necessarily, frankly, where I stand um, on this topic. I think that American interference generally is not a great thing. I do think that I mean go back to go back to some episodes from 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 last semester where I'm talking about Afghanistan, and I get a little heated, just a little heated um because we really were there for twenty years and we did nothing effective. Then again, we're not going into Ukraine to do any like peace building or state building. We're just going in to help them push out a threat, but then again it's <clears throat> Me. Then again, it's the United States military. They're not very good at just going in, fixing one problem, and getting out. They're very committed to um, sticking around and seeing what else they can mess up. So I think that there is definitely something to be said in that in that sense. But that's all I want to talk about the Ukraine today. Of course, we'll always talk about it more. No matter, no matter how hard I try, it will always, at least for this, you know, for the next couple of weeks until something gives... Um, it will it will continue to be a story that we talk about. But with that, moving on. Next thing I want to talk about, a sports story. Emily Lamb of Sheep Thrills talking about sports. Heck yeah. Um, so I may not be a huge sports fan, but I am a fan of collective bargaining. And that is the nerdiest sentence I've ever said. Um, so i you know, I may have mentioned the story briefly last semester when we were talking about all those labor strikes that were going on. And yes, we're talking about another labor policy story. So, you know, this is a running trend for this semester is me talking about labor policy stories, which is very exciting for me. Um, but anyway, talked about it briefly last semester. It's still ongoing and I, I just think it's, it's starting to draw a lot of attention again. Um, so I think that it's important that we talk about it. Um, so Major League Baseball. Is kind of currently in a in a labor strike, labor shutout situation. It's not really a labor strike because the, um, it's the it's Major League Baseball that's locking the players out of being able to practice or communicate with their teams and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the the players could very easily come to the table and and kind of agree on a plan because they have a a lot of the power right now, which we'll get to. Um, and they're choosing kind of not to come to the table and not agree on a. Uh, on a new collective bargaining agreement, which is why I'm characterizing it kind of more as a labor strike um, than anything else, even though it's maybe not the correct terminology um, and so in terms of in terms of labor disagreements in terms of high profile labor disagreements, this story is very interesting to me um because it's a very unique interesting case because most of the labor strikes that we talk about are um, they're about, like, sorry, I'm getting my water. Um, They're about, you know, minimum wage workers who kind of have no larger audience, no larger representation. But the workers that we're talking about here in terms of major league baseball players are making potentially, mil- like, almost always are making millions of dollars a year. So, you know, they're not, and they're also certainly not underappreciated, you know, like, they're, they're these major figures on the national and international stage um so it begs the question of like should we be talking about collective bargaining should we talk should we be talking about unionization in terms of these athletes who are making so much money is it just like you're making a million dollars be quiet and play baseball sorry i'm going to take a drink of water excuse me (laughs) okay i'm sorry about that you know look getting up at Seven o'clock in the morning to do the show, I don't have time to drink my coffee, so I was a little thirsty. but anyway, anyway, so, and also, you know, it begs the question, should we be talking about unionization and should we be talking about labor rights in terms of professional athletes? Um, but it also kind of begs the question, if you're making millions of dollars a year, does that mean you you shouldn't have access to those collective bargaining um, powers? And you know we talk about we've talked about the entertainment union in the past. Um, but anyway, it's just it's just an interesting dichotomy of kind of like the two biggest groups that we talk about labor advocacy with. One is people who are making millions and millions of dollars a year and people who are making maybe, maybe $15 an hour. It's very interesting that those two groups kind of have to work together um, to kind of make this, this movement much larger. But anyway, so a little bit of background, um, last year, Major League Baseball organization um, locked players out after their collective bargaining agreement expired and this was uh, I think last November or December maybe early December Um, and so it basically blocked players from entering any kind of team facilities um, or communicating with the their their team organization at all Um, and so spring training camp was supposed to start this week um, but the only people that were able to show up were people who are not currently affiliated um, with Major League Baseball, so ready. I'm, I'm about. I'm. This is this is the best story for me because I don't know anything about baseball, but I'm gonna. I'm so I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do the the comparison that I made in my head when I was reading about this. I was like, oh, so it's like a non-equity call for a show. I'm a horrible person. Uh, so if you don't know theater and you don't know baseball, basically, what the, so equity is the is the theater union. And so they do um they do equity calls where if you're part of the like the theater equity group, you can go to those and it's kind of you get a little bit more like attention. Or if you're non-equity, if you're just some schlub off the street, anybody can go to a non-equity call and they can try to, you know, like go to like an open call audition and get a part. So this is basically Major League Baseball's version of a non-equity call. So all these people who are not affiliated with Major League Baseball are able to come out for this like quote unquote mini camp that they're having instead of full spring training camp which is very interesting um the lockout notably was not a necessary step like once the um collective bargaining agreement expired they did not have to go into a lockout um but the commissioner of the mlb decided to do it anyway because he's dumb i suppose i don't really know why he made that decision don't know who advised him on that and who's advising him now, but they should all get fired they should all they should all lose their jobs i don't I don't know what they're doing at this point um the although i guess look at the very beginning of this of this whole disagreement um it made some strategic sense for the commissioner because um they were able to kind of spin it and say, oh well we're you know we're coming to the table like we want to create this agreement, but it's it's the players who aren't coming to the table to agree with us. It kind of put the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it put the, not the power in the hands of the players, but it put the expectation, I guess, in the hands of the players to come to the, to, to come to MLB and to talk through, um, what was going on. However, I really think that people care more about the players than the MLB brand, um, I just think that, like, the actual, the, the, the players are obviously, like, as we've talked about repeatedly, powers hold, or excuse me, employees hold control over everything and everyone. They're the ones that are holding the power in this situation. So I, th- I just think that's, like, a very interesting dichotomy between the the commissioner trying to maintain control and maintain power over the situation where he needs money, from um viewers and from people who are coming to the games but he has to kind of deal with the fact that the 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 players are really the ones that hold all the power so the lockout was kind of his way of trying to to reclaim some control and that made sense in the beginning it does not make sense now which we'll get into so the main issues that they're um currently fighting over um so, despite high salaries, so I think that I think I read that the median salary for a major league baseball player is four million dollars, which four million dollars I know this story is so hard it's so hard to feel bad, not that I feel bad for the baseball players, but it's so hard to to be on their side. It really is, but you know whatever we stand with the workers we stand with the workers anyway um so anyway, despite high salaries, they haven't been moving along with team revenue increases, which if you'll if you if you'll remember, again the stories from Striketober sounds similar to the fact that all these corporations are making so much money and they are not raising any kind of pay for the workers that are the ones generating all of the revenue. Whatever. There we go. That's the similarity between all of these stories is employers taking for granted the labor of employees. Employees are the ones generating the labor, but the employers are the ones that are actually benefiting from it. There you go. So that that's kind of that, that, that blank slate, even ground. It doesn't, I mean it does, but for, for sake of argument, it doesn't matter that one individual is making $15 and one individual is making $4 million. You know, there's, there's still that blank slate of a, an uneven employer-employee relationship. Anyway, and then you know other measures that they've been talking about um, is obtaining um, earlier compensation for younger players, because younger players are obviously less experienced and cheaper, and so a lot of organizations have been kind of taking advantage of that, um, and so there's been a, a conversation around trying to increase pay for those players so that they aren't being kind of taken advantage of. Um, Other things, uh, creating ways for players to reach salary arbitration sooner, uh, raising luxury tax thresholds, curbing service time manipulation, um, and then forcing teams to be more competitive, uh, which I think is very interesting because, I don't know, I think it's good. I think it's good that that players also want the sport to be more interesting and be more competitive through changes in the draft and altering, altering revenue sharing among teams, just kind of generally making the entire process more competitive from start to finish. So again, it seems so selfish on the face, because shut up, you're making millions of dollars, but it's also the principle of it all, you know? And the, in this situation at least, and in most situations, as I've said, the power is lying squarely with the players. Um, and so it's interesting to see how little the owners kind of are are caving to the demands of, of the players. Um, and here's my thing. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Well, that that was not true. I always know what I'm talking about. Once again, I know everything and I am extremely smart. Um, and once again, because you can't see my face and my body language, that is sarcasm. Please don't take this out of context. Okay, anyway. Um, it seems easy enough, frankly, for the Players Union to just create their own baseball organization that isn't MLB, right? Like, they... the the, the they won't have the branding. They won't have the Yankees and the Mets and whatever. Um, but I don't... I, I don't think the fans care. I think that they... I think that the fans are very brand loyal, obviously. But I think that they care more about... They're not gonna... They're not gonna watch a bunch of... You know, like... They're not gonna watch me go out there and try to play baseball just because I'm wearing a Mets jersey. Like, they don't... The the point of the watching the sport is the players. So I have a feeling... That, that viewers and consumers of Major League Baseball will kind of follow the players wherever they go. Um, so it's kind of off-brand, but I think they want some off-brand baseball more than nothing. And there's so, there's so many investors out there who would be willing to go out and to help fund the, the creation of this new organization that, by the way, is caving to basically every single... not Maybe not caving, but to, to lean into every single demand that the players have the players already have this union. They're already all, I think every single player is locked out. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it just tr- truly seems like they, they have so much power that they're not even utilizing right now. Um, which is very interesting. And I, I would like to see them kind of, even, even if it's a bluff, like ye old Vladimir Putin, I'd like to see them kind of Start setting up the groundwork for creating a new organization that's a little bit more equitable to players, that has more profit sharing, and um, see what MLB does. Because what is MLB? Eh, who cares? Who cares about them? But anyway, um, that was slightly tangential, but still important, I think. Whatever. Anyway, as of now, um, players have yet to be financially impacted, um, but the season is rapidly approaching um, and they're going to have to come to an agreement soon or nobody is going to get paid. Players, coaches, anybody, because if you're not selling tickets, you're not going to um, make any money. Um, and so, of course, the main goal right now is our lovely bottom line. Um, so that's kind of the the deadline that's rapidly approaching. Players have rejected an offer of federal mediation because the players are saying that they're asking for like very fair things. And so why would they need someone from... Um, the federal government to get involved, um, and the players have managed to hold out long enough that management is sweating, sweating. I mean, they they've already decided that they're going to truncate spring training from six weeks to four weeks, um, and so you know they can the it, the the power is now shifting on a on a public relations stage um, from management to the players because. Again, management is nothing without the players. This is not... This is also not the kind of um, labor where, like, they can get people to cross the picket line and, you know, be the ones working at the, um, working in a factory. Which, like, obviously we know from the John Deere story is, like, not actually how that works, but just for the sake of argument. Like, you actually need real athletes to play this game. You, you, You can't just pull some randos off the street and get them to do it. Um... And so now management can not only be blamed if the season doesn't start and kind of millions of dollars go out the window, uh, but they can also be blamed for um, continuing kind of a multi-year downturn in Major League Baseball due to the pandemic. Um, Plus local economies are suffering. There's a lot of economies that are, uh, a lot of like local towns that that rely on spring training and rely, and a lot of cities that rely on income and revenue from baseball um, to make money. You know, a lot of people were expecting to make that money, and now they're not making it. And, of course, all these restaurants and everything are now suffering even more because on top of COVID, on top of supply chain issues, on top of inflation, they're not making the money that they expected to be making because players are not there and spectators are not there. And that was the word I was looking for this entire time was spectator, not viewer. It is early in the morning, y'all, and now I'm heated talking about Major League Baseball. What is this? Anyway, so we also don't know now what the season is actually going to look like. If they don't break the lockout in the next couple of weeks, spring training is going to be really short, coaches aren't going to be able to coach, players aren't going to be able to train. What do we actually expect the season to look like if the teams aren't able to work with each other before the season starts and then are they gonna have to push the season back redo the entire schedule Ooh, I don't know but not good not good at all that's what I'll say Um, and I really think that the MLB thought that they were gonna be able to get away with keeping the lockout going and now like again like Vladimir Putin uh, they're just digging in their heels because they can't be seen as as giving the players any wins because if the players get a win they'll kind of continue to, to push 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 until they get everything they want which is like yeah and again the as i've said the the really interesting difference between this and other labor strikes is that the players have a lot of like public power they have an audience they are they're well respected they're well loved they're well-known. Again, they they have huge social media presences. Um, and other, unlike other labor strikes where the only people paying attention are like news readers and labor policy wonks, um, this story is actually going to the common person. Hey, can somebody say America's pastime, right? Like now normal people are paying attention to labor advocacy. And I think that a lot of baseball fans are not gonna be very pleased with the major league baseball organization. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how public opinion changes and whether or not, like, normal people get more invested in labor policy because of this. Probably not, but one can only hope. Um, and so this also kind of, this is tangential, but it's interesting. It reminds me slightly of the NCAA Supreme Court case last year, which held that college athletes had the right to profit off of their own image. So they can sell merchandise with their own faces on it, blah, blah, blah. Interesting intersection. we talked about the Olympics. We've talked about this. Like, there's such an interesting intersection between sports and policy. So anyway, I just think it's interesting. Um, So we'll keep watching the story, as always. Spring training is supposed to be happening. It's not. We'll see if it continues or if it does not. Um, But anyway, um, everything is policy. Everything is policy, and it's so exciting. I love unions. Anyway, that's all I want to talk about there. I got really heated. I'm, like, I'm like rolling at my sleeves. Like, I'm sweating. Anyway. Um, and here's my other tangent. And it has nothing to do with the news. A little bit to do with the news. Here's my pitch. Romance novel between a major league baseball player and a labor organizer. That's amazing. That's such a great idea. I'm going to write it. I'll keep you guys updated. I'm writing it. Okay. We are doing a huge tone shift right now. We are... We're doing a huge 180 in terms of tone. uh, This is no longer fun. Okay, anyway, we're going to talk about Sandy Hook. Um, This is a slightly depressing story, um, of course, because we're talking about a school shooting. um, But I think it's something that we need to talk about. Um, So this week, nine years after the Sandy Hook massacre, the families of the victims were able to come away with a $73 million settlement against Remington, Uh, which is the manufacturer of the gun that was used in the shooting Um, and so this is generally not something you hear about because gun manufacturers are so protected from litigation Um, but they were able to argue that the gun manufacturer violated connecticut's consumer protection law um, by quote promoting its products in ways that appealed to so-called couch commandos and troubled young men like the 20-year-old that went into Sandy Hook and was actually the one who, who committed the crime. Um, and so because this argument was successful, a lot of different lawyers have been saying that this kind of framework is now something that can be used um, in other school shooting cases to provide some kind of restitution to um, the the families of victims of shootings. Um, and this could be, this could be a now a way for um, individuals to kind of, again, get around all of those different litigation measure, or all those different kind of litigation shields um, that are kind of built up around gun manufacturers. It's so hard to kind of hold gun manufacturers liable for anything that happens because of their guns, um, but now because of the success of this case, it's possible that this argument is going to be able to be used in other situations. And again, the the, the goal of the, of the case, according to fam- families of the victims, was to quote, pry open the industry and expose it to more scrutiny, um, and the actual trial exposed Remington's documents, um, like a lot of their documents, um, which included possible plans for how to market the weapon, which was again the main sticking point of the prosecution. Um, you know, they said they 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 made the plan to make this, you know, AK forty seven esque gun look super appealing to young men who want to look more masculine and like that was that was the motivation behind their marketing um and so of course when when a man gets it and uses it to appear more masculine and he shoots up an elementary school hey their marketing worked eh, not really great but um you know there was, the, was very clear that it was just exposed to to a lot of scrutiny there um and there was very clear comparisons between their actions and what actually happened um so yeah that 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 was kind of the the main point of the case i just and this is a short story but i just think that it's important to talk about just cuz you know we've to, i feel like we've talked about gun violence a lot in the past but as a college student and as a i mean i want to say let's see sandy hook was 9 years ago so i was 11 so I was, like, a couple years older. Like, I remember when Sandy Hook happened. Um, and so, you know, being being a student in this generation, right, is very much just being, um, like, all the, like, the fact that, like, a lot of my, my quote-unquote core memories have to do with school shootings. Um, Sandy Hook and Parkland and all these things. It's just, it's, it's a really important issue to me personally. It's a really important issue to talk about. Um, just, again, because it is, it is... Something that we have been talking about for so many years and the fact that all these shootings continue to happen, continue to happen, continue to happen. um, And there's been nothing that's been done to stop them from happening. And there are also so few situations in which any kind of justice is provided to victims or to the families of victims um, just because of the NRA and because of this, this like the insane litigation shields that are around um, these organizations. It's so difficult To get justice right and so i just think it's a really important thing that we talk about and sandy hook as a case is so so interesting because it was such a huge story when it happened and i think even today it's still something we remember and something we talk about i feel like it's probably only second to probably like columbine and parkland in terms of like straight up infamy um columbine of course just because it was one of the first and then parkland just because it was so huge and like sparked this this entire movement but Sandy Hook was such a heart-wrenching horrible story um that I feel like it just is very much kind of lives and lives in everybody's minds um and it's also just so interesting how how much it stayed in the news um of course like Parkland is was in the news for a while but it's it's kind of even even with March for Our Lives the actual story of the shooting has kind of faded into the into the into the background a little bit um Especially, like, the, the trial happened, it, it was over, it's not something we would necessarily, like, talk about anymore. Um, except for, like, on those anniversaries. But, Sandy Hook itself has stayed in the news for such a long time. First with the, was with all the Alex Jones stuff, and if you don't remember that, um, he basically spent years, um, and I think there's still a lot of people who say this, um, who basically claim that Sandy Hook's, Sandy Hook was a hoax, Um, and that all the families were crisis actors and all that kind of stuff. Let me just, excuse me while I vomit, you know, um, which is just like absolutely horrifying. Um, and there was, you know, there was, there was lawsuits happening there. And then of course there's, there's now this story and they've been in the press so much and I can only imagine, again, nine years, I can only imagine, um, that it must be so hard for these families to stay in the legal limelight for such a long time. Um, but you know, they're getting some kind of justice, um, even though the true justice would have been the shooting not happening in the first place, because there's there were stronger gun laws. But anyway, that's all I want to talk about there. I just wanted to to bring it to everyone's attention because I think it's important um, that that we talk about some some we talk about the wins sometimes um, when we're able to get them. All right, moving on. Last story. We're gonna do this very quickly because I did not manage my time well, and now we only have fifteen minutes, ten minutes, really. So. I'm going to talk about the Senate very quickly. Hey, is the government going to shut down again? Maybe. Um, If you were not here last semester, we talked about the government shutting down in every other episode. Because the government almost shut down in every other episode. Um, Honestly, I just need the government to just, just end my suffering. Just shut down or don't shut down. You can't keep doing this to me. Anyway. Um... So this is specifically kind of in 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 relation to the senate um we've talked about the senate just generally being wildly efficient and chuck schumer the majority leader being like uh, not super great at his job maybe um maybe not the most effective leader but anyway this is this just kind of a oh excuse me i'm so sorry i just literally backhanded the mic that's so horrifying um this is i i use i do use a lot of hand gestures when i'm talking to you know talking to myself here so I really just whacked the microphone, but I hope it's okay. Um, but anyway, we have a situation here in which Schumer is trying desperately to gain some political upper hand. Um, government funding was just extended to March 11th. They've, the, the two parties were able to kind of determine a top line number for 2022 fiscal year. Um, but they still have not kind of come up with all of the specifics. And of course, the Democrats have kind of given into the fact that Build Back Better is stalled, which I kind of believe is code word for dead on arrival. Um, but they're still trying to get a lot of those programs from Build Back Better into the actual funding bill, but of course Republicans don't want anything to do with that because they don't want to hand the um, Democrats any kind of win. So... Um, Will they be able to work out the specifics before March 11th? Considering that they're on recess, the Senate is on recess until the end of the month. I don't know. It kind of seems like I t- again we talked about this last semester. You've got a funding bill to write. I know that you need to go home and campaign, but like, stop it. Do the work. Do the work now. Um, And so Schumer's role in leadership, I think, has been a very interesting conversation that I want to touch on a little bit briefly. He just accepted his fifth nomination for the New York Senate seat, which is such a long time that he's been in office. Um, But it's very interesting that he, you know, he accepted this position, is now, you know, committing himself to another term. Um, And there's been no official leadership challenges uh, within the Senate, and nobody but Bernie Sanders has openly criticized his conduct as leader. Um, Although Schumer has, quote, rejected those criticisms as politically clueless, which I think is kind of funny. Um... And so, and I think they know that like Sanders can kind of get away with it because he's a quote unquote independent, um, and so he can kind of get away with with criticizing the Democratic Party because everyone kind of expects him to. Um, but there hasn't been any kind of like larger scale infighting within the party because I think everybody, or larger scale infighting in terms of leadership within the party, because I think everybody knows that that would be just really bad um, for the party because the Senate is already such a hot mess that. Um, Kind of getting that, having some kind of leadership fight or some kind of leadership challenge would just absolutely kind of send everybody spinning. Um, and so the question is, does Schumer know what he's doing? That's, you know, that's the running theme. That's the running theme for today. Do all of these adult men know what they're doing? Do they? I really don't think they do. Anyway. Um, You know, is he doing the best he can with an, you know, an unruly Democratic caucus and a 50-50 split? Um, You know, it's it's easy to criticize Schumer, which I recognize that I just did. I just criticized him. My bad. Sorry. Um, Sorry, Senator Schumer. I'm so sorry. Um, I know you're listening. I'm so sorry for criticizing you, Chuck. Um, But, you know, is it also, the, the question is, is it necessarily fair um, to compare his legislative successes to previous majority leaders, who have had a larger majority or even like a 60-vote majority that can that can you know break a filibuster, um, this is a much harder political situation for him to do anything in. But then again, has he been successful in anything? Um, and so we've got these these the, the main questions um, for Schumer and for Biden's legislative priorities: Is he going to get anything from Build Back Better done? Is he going to be able to get through the new SCOTUS nominee? Um, Will there be any kind of sanctions bill on Russia or any kind of general path, legal path forward if Russia decides to invade Ukraine? Right now, an interesting um, conflict is that the Republicans are currently boycotting Sarah Bloom Raskin's nomination uh, to the Federal Reserve. Are they going to be able to push that nomination through? Um, And if the Republicans are effective in this boycott, will they be able to do the same thing to a potential SCOTUS nominee. Um, and, and so those are kind of like the main questions that he's leaning on, and he's also been talking about so many different issues, um, and so he kind of tries to, he's trying to have his hands in, in a lot of things right now, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily the most effective strategy. That being said, I've never been the majority leader of the Senate, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what necessarily is the best way to kind of handle all of these uh, various situations as they come up. Um, so what has the Senate done in the past year? Mm, the infrastructure bill, I guess. That's kind of it. Uh, they're voting on the new post office bill uh, when they come back from recess, which is good. Um, it's, it's fine. It's kind of like a bipartisan thing. Make the post office more efficient. People, I think, are, are fans of that. Um, but that's kind of, you know, like what, what has the Senate been able to, been able to accomplish? And if, if your argument is they've accomplished nothing, how can we make the Senate more efficient? How can we, if we, you know, the Democrats do have a majority in the Senate. They should be able to do the work. They should be able to do what they need to do. Um, but of course, they're not actually able to get anything done because the Senate is a bad organization. It's not a good body. Ugh. We're back to my abolish the Senate kick. Abolish the Senate. Anyway, um, just because it's it's so clear that like it's, it's not a Democratic body. Um, and I, I don't know. I think whatever. I don't think I I don't think I have a good takeaway from this little overview that I just did, but I do think that it's again, it's important that we talk about where the Senate stands um because once again, just as another reminder, we've got the State of the Union coming up. Um and Biden is going to have to kind of lean on the successes of the Senate and the Senate can't can't hold him up. You know, they when you when you when you have all three, when you have the the trifecta of the house the senate and the presidency you're expected to be able to get so much done and the senate is just absolutely not doing the work that they need to do to get this work done and is that biden's fault is that schumer's fault is that joe manchin's fault is it everybody's fault probably um and it i think it's just at this point it's a matter of of political will uh, more than anything else but anyway that's all with that of course we'll always be talking about the senate there, there's no way that we won't be talking about the Senate. So anyway, um, and here in these last couple minutes, here's our fun story of the week. Boat news, boat news. This is a new boat. It's not the Suez canal boat. Um, but a cargo ship filled with luxury cars was on fire in the Atlantic. All of the employees on the boat were able to get out employees. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but they're So they're all safe. So even though the boat is on fire, they're all good. Um, but now, according to maritime law, the boat is now basically, like, up for grabs. Like, if you can get the boat, like, it's all yours. How fun is that? Does anybody want to go out there with me and try to rescue this boat and and, and get all of these burnt luxury cars? It's so funny. Anyway. I was, you know, I was missing talking about the Suez Canal boat, but now we've got another... We've got another boat to talk about. And all these people are gonna go full on like Pirates of the Caribbean to try to steal this boat because it's up for grabs. How fun is that, maritime law? Who knew? Who knew? Alright. But that's all I wanted to talk about today. I managed to get through everything. I really had a lot of content for the show that I did not realize that I had this much to talk about. Um but anyway, it's been lovely to chat with you all today. Um have a great weekend. Have a great week. Um, if you want to engage with the show on social media, you can follow uh, the show on Instagram at Sheep Thrills Radio and on Twitter at Sheep Thrills GW. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you want to fight with me. Let me know if you also think that all of these adult men don't know what they're doing and that they're driving the world into the ground. If you'd probably be right about that, and I'd probably agree with you. Um, but with that, That's all I've got for you today. Have a lovely week again. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, Have a great long weekend. President's weekend. Heck yeah. George Washington. Um, But with that, I'll see you guys later. And have a lovely rest of your day.